Hello, marvelous listeners, and welcome to the Atypical Behavior Analyst, your place and space to hear conversational information about the science of behavior analysis. I am your host, Kelly, and welcome to episode 37. Thank you so much for your patience as I've been traveling and working through some technical issues, but we're back. And before we jump into today's episode, let's go over some quick housekeeping. First off, we are ACE approved. So if you're listening for continuing education units, jot down the two keywords interspersed during the talk, and then take those over to our website, atypicalba.com, where you can purchase CEUs. Also, cruise around the site to find additional resources for each episode and more information about our amazing guests. Next, if you'd like to stay up to date with upcoming talks and live events, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our live events are a fantastic time to hang out, learn, and interact with our guests, and our social media is a great way to get to know the podcast, so reach out and say hi. Lastly, stick around after the talk to hear a preview clip from our next episode. Oh, friends, during this year, we are trying to talk less and listen more. In this live talk, we meet with Naida to learn from her experience as an African-American woman, behavior analyst, and mother as she navigates the many layered complexities of the educational and medical systems, not just for herself, but also for her family. Naida is a self-diagnosed autistic, and during the talk, she unpacks the barriers she has faced while trying to receive her own diagnosis while also receiving a diagnosis and service for her son. Her ongoing story provides a chance for others to reflect on some of the unspoken or unaddressed biases and judgments one may not be aware of when collaborating and working with people who come from different backgrounds. She describes the many competing contingencies that families can face when trying to do what is best for their child, their career, and themselves. And Naida beautifully encourages others to remain persistent and never stop learning. So tune in and get ready to further that learning with episode 37, Navigating Systems of Intersectionality with Naida Abernathy. Welcome. Happy Friday. Here's my more official introduction. (laughs) It's the Atypical Behavior Analyst. It's one of our live events. And these are always fun because I get to see wonderful people um, without having to leave my house, which, you know, as an introvert is a fantastic thing. So I get to have my human interaction and still be comfortable and be in my space. So I am super excited to talk with Naida today. Um, She's going to be sharing her experiences and her story. Um, And yeah, we're going to be touching on lots of little different areas and seeing how as a Black female, African-American female, and a mother and a behavior analyst and someone who was trying to seek a diet. Like, there's so many things that go in. You know, it, it's again, nothing is can be easy. Um, there's a lot of complexities and things that a lot of us may not realize because we'll never experience it. So um, I appreciate you immensely. And if you could just kind of start off and give us a quick little bit about yourself and kind of what you're doing right now, and then we'll get into more detailed questions. Okay. Um, again, I'm Naida Abernathy. Hello. Uh, I am a board-certified behavior analyst. I've been in the ABA field for about three years, and I've mostly worked in like the human service field and education field. So I have 15, 15 years of experience in the education field um, and in the human service field uh, collectively. I am a mom of a child with autism as well. I do concern myself as a non-diagnosed um, autistic. I don't have a formal diagnosis. Uh, my formal diagnosis is generalized anxiety disorder, and yeah, I am. Uh, I'm also an expressive art therapy student, so uh, so I am still in school to um, to do expressive art therapy, and I want to combine ABA and expressive art therapy to help to help kids be more well rounded. Um, so I do work in one on one settings with with kiddos doing ABA um, ABA therapy. 
And I also do social groups too. That's so cool. The art therapy thing is just fascinating to me. Um, so actually, if you could, could you talk a little bit more about that? Because um, I don't want to lose sight of it. And I think that's really interesting, yeah. especially combining it with behavior analysis. Absolutely. So um, expressive arts is very therapeutic in itself. Um, and it also helps with like with sensory integration as well. So I utilize um, music, theater, uh, improv, dance and movement um, into my sessions. And I do that uh, strategically to teach certain skills as well, because improv teaches a lot of skills. It teaches you how to interact with other people, how to be aware of your surroundings. It also helps with communication skills verbally and non-verbally in a very fun and inter- interactive way. Um, and then, you know, dance the jitters out, get, you know, get your body movement feeling good. So it helps with a lot of sensory integration. It helps with um in a therapeutic way as well. And it also helps with communication and social skills as well. So do you find that you're maybe getting more success? um, However you want to define that when you're integrating that kind of uh, movement and expressiveness rather than just doing like... Yeah, I get more buy-in when I I utilize expressive arts into my sessions. Um, And then the kids are having fun. I never realized they're having therapy Sometimes I mean, there's there's also room for um, more structured therapy as well, but I try to incorporate as much expressive arts as I can, depending on the students in a group that I'm working with. Um, but expressive arts has also helped me in my own personal life. I feel like before I got into theater, I had a hard time interacting with with um, my peers at school, and theater really helped me. Even helped me with my academic skills, like doing cold reading classes, really helped me with. Um, being able to um, help me with my reading comprehension skills as well. So um, it's awesome. You learn so much. And it's another way to connect with other humans too. It connects us together, you know, art does. So I love it so much. That's so cool. Um, There's an odd group of theatrical behavior analysts running around. Um, I believe Dana Miller was actually on Broadway, uh, if, if that's if my memory is correct. Um, Dr. Sigrid Glenn, um, who's up at UNT, she and her husband started the like Shakespeare in the Park in Dallas. Uh, so oh. I, yeah, and so I love the way you just articulated because it does, it, it, it connects and you, when you become a character, um, you do, you, you learn a little bit more about yourself and how you fit into it and how you fit in the world. And I can see for someone who, you know, I, like I said, I'm an introvert. Um, I also have anxiety. And so the character thing has been very beneficial. You know, it's mm-hmm. who do I need to be today? Okay. I'm going into this session and this kiddo is having a really hard time. So I need to be a little bit more empathetic or a little bit more caring, or this kiddo is wired to the brim. So man, we're going to be big and we're going to be exciting. Yeah. Um, Yes. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. So now we've got another projects we can go on um, all the time. So, so what was kind of your, your lead in? How did you find behavior analysis? What was your story with that? Um, trying to get my son's diagnosis was, uh, was it for me. Uh, my son really struggles with uh, emotion regulation as a kid. And um, his, he had a hard time speaking as well. So he was a late speaker. Um, so I was trying to seek services for him and was faced with a lot of opposition um, from pediatricians, from speech uh, pathologists. Um, so I, it really got sparked out of me being pissed off out of, out from the medical <laughs> system, to be honest. Um, so I looked up to see, you know, and then, I, and then when he did get his diagnosis, there was like a crazy waiting list. 
um, for services. So I was like, you know what, what would it take for me to become um, a BCBA and open up a center to help to help other kids? So I looked it up and felt it was like something that was feasible for myself. So I went for it. And that's literally how I got into behavior analyst, but just by being pissed off at what was available <laughs> or the lack of whatever was available. Dude. Yeah, I can't yeah. find what I need. I'm going to go ahead and make what I need, which I think is fantastic. Exactly. Holy shnikes. So what is the, because you're in Nevada, um, and so each state mm-hmm. has its own issues right now. Um, so what is the system like in Nevada for trying to get a diagnosis, you know, not just for your child, but also kind of that process for yourself, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, I don't mind at all. Uh, well, the first barrier is that there's only about four or five um, people who are qualified to even diagnose autism right now in, in my city. So that so that was huge there's a huge waiting list um, to even seek a diagnosis medically, um, a medical diagnosis. And on top of that, if those if they take your insurance is another barrier too. So it's like either if you're not um, an affluent family that has a lot of uh, financial resources, it's very difficult to even get a diagnosis. Um, and then you can put a, a racial barrier there too. Um, so if uh, you're black and brown, it's really hard to get a diagnosis because of doctors' um, racial biases. So I had to go to my son's pediatrician four times before he would give me a referral um, to seek a diagnosis. And the fourth time is because I collected my own data on my son's behavior. Um, and the only reason why I knew how to collect data is because I'm educated. Right. So I already had a master's degree at this point, so I knew how to collect data. So if you're have if you're a family who doesn't have um, a lot of education, then you're not going to know to do that. So you're just going to take the doctor's word for it, saying, "Oh, well, the doctor just says, you know, he's just a late speaker, and that's okay." Um, um, or he just maybe I need to. One thing that a doctor told me is that I need to read to him more. I need to talk to him more, as if I don't talk to him or read to him already. So just different things like that um, that I was facing that I know a lot of other families face. And then people are not as persistent as I am. I'm extremely persistent. If I believe of something, I'm going to make everyone align to <laughs> what I believe is true. So um, I was that persistent where I kept going back to the doctor and saying, hey, check his hearing again. Hey, I need a referral. Hey, this is happening. Um, and they're like, okay, we checked his hearing twice already. There's nothing wrong with his hearing. I'm like, yeah, because it's a sensory issue. And I know that. I'm making you check it so you can see that it's a sensory issue. Um, and then I took my own data on his language. I took my own data on his behaviors um, and on his uh, sensory issues. And then that's when he took it seriously. Like, okay, I will put in a referral. So um, if a family doesn't have that same persistence, then they're going to just, you know, be passed along. Um, same thing in the educational system. I had to fight for my son to get an educational diagnosis as well. So we finally, today, this morning, literally this morning, um, I got what I want and he's going to have special education services. Um, and their argument was because that his grades were decent. And his grades were decent because I pushed for his grades to be decent. Um, so he did have a 504 plan. So he had a few accommodations in place. Uh, but after he got caught in the classroom, I would come home and teach him the same concepts he learned in class one-on-one. And that's the reason why he did well. Um, because also because he has such an amazing teacher as well. Who's, who's, his teacher is also neurodiverse, so which was 
really great that he was able to have a neurodiverse teacher that um, understood what he was going through. But yeah, so there's a lot of barriers to that. So I forced her hand to assess him. And so they're like, okay, yeah, he does have deficiencies in this area where he does need special ed services. But a lot of families will just say, okay, well, my son's grades are decent. So uh, I'm just going to take what they say and we're just going to move along. And then what happens is I could tell that he was getting um, burnt out. Like he was experiencing autistic burnout. So I'm like, no, he needs he needs more services. And then a lot of kids do experience those, that autistic burnout when they um, don't have the support that they need. And they end up having emotional outbursts in class, which contributes to them getting sent out of class, um, getting RPC, getting suspended from school, being um, integrated to the criminal justice system. And when they're not getting the services that they need. so. It's a huge barrier here, especially in Nevada. Um, you can't even look it, look it up as based on like states that have the best services for autism. Nevada's at the bottom, unfortunately. But it's a it's a significant problem here in Nevada. I mean, just kind of as a as a thought for everybody. Um... What do you think contributes to that? Is it a lack of education overall? I mean, having only four to five, you know, people that are able to diagnose in a city seems really, really low. So is, you it know, is low. so kind of what are your it thoughts? Is, it is about a lack of education a little bit too. We have um, a high, uh, well, I live in Las Vegas. Um, so we have a lot of casinos. So a lot of people go, they graduate high school, they, um, they work in the casinos because you can make a pretty decent living working in the casino versus pursuing, you know, formal education to become a teacher or to become a psychologist or a neuropsychologist, or it's just there's more incentives of just going to work in the casino um, than there is on pursuing education. So um, that's part of, that's part of it. And another part of it is that we have um, a lot of people moving here as well. So we have a huge population of people who are migrating uh, from different states and from different countries. And so that contributes as well. So sometimes they're written off as it just being a language barrier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I so, get it. And then you, have, then you have a social economical um, barrier as well. And, you know, if you don't have a lot of money to pay out of pocket, um, then it's very difficult to find someone that, that takes your insurance too. And if they do take your insurance, it's a huge waiting list. And it, it breaks my heart because um, I also know that like not every state, and I don't know if Nevada is like this, where Texas has Medicaid, Medicare waiver programs that we can get some adults with services and everything. I mean, it is not the 30 or 40 hours, you know, it's, I get maybe an hour or two a week. Um, so we usually it's, it looks very different. It's not ABA, quote unquote, in the traditional sense. Um, but I wonder, like, does Nevada have something like that? Or is it really just limited to, hey, if you've got insurance, that's it. I mean, there's no, there's other programs too that we have like an ATAP program where, where families could um, apply to, and that's kind of like a needs space too as well. Um, and they will pay for the therapies um, even if you don't have insurance. But if you do have insurance, they'll, they'll be able to be like a subsidy for it. Uh, we do have the uh, Katie, Be- Katie Beckett Medicaid. If you don't qualify for Medicaid or SSI, then you can apply for um, that as well. Um, but parents do have need help navigating those applications as well because it can be expensive um, and they can require a lot of 
information. And if you have one piece of information that's not completely filled out, then you're not going to get services. So um, the, the um, applications have to be fully complete um, and filled out correctly in order to have your application be pushed through. But yeah, there are some services that are available. Cool. And I, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the extensiveness of these applications because mm-hmm. this is something that um, I think people kind of forget is we focus on like my my client is the individual that I work with directly, but they come with family members and caregivers and histories. And we it's not that we forget about that, but it's, you know, we don't kind of prioritize them as much. And they get overwhelmed and they, you know, have to fill out all this paperwork. And like you said, you miss one initial and it's like, oh, nope, bottom of the list. Sorry. And there's no compassion there. And and I've been on a soapbox about this for the last couple of weeks because it's, it's not okay. Like it's, it's just one of those, if we're supposed to be compassionate and empathetic and and we're in the business of helping people, that is the opposite of helping people. I agree. Sorry, sorry. Um, but no, I, 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 it's fascinating to me to see, especially the differences between how the states handle it and everything and, and the lack of resources. And you mentioned, you know, you've got people that are moving in that are from different countries and speak different languages and things that, you know, we take for granted. Um, I'm able to go outside and everybody understands what I say. But if I spoke a different language or lived in a different country, um, or if I wasn't able to communicate vocal verbally, you know, the world is horrendously different at that point. So what were some of the struggles? So so as you were growing up, um, you know, did you notice anything looking back, I guess, now on it? Do you notice anything that you were like, ah, that was that was a sign that something was different or that I, I wasn't in the same realm as my peers or things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I even go back to like my reading comprehension skills. Like I, I hit it very well because I was very um, persistent on hiding my deficiencies. Uh, that was like something I did as a kid. So like I really figured out how I could make sure I have decent grades um, without really learning the concept. Um, so I was really, really good at that. Uh, I was really good at masking and, um, and I really still am but um and I was really good at learning my accommodations but I actually thought that everyone needed those accommodations like for example I remember when they used to give us an agenda at school to kind of help us organize um our assignments and due dates and stuff like that I was really the only kid in my school that used that thing faithfully (laughs) like I just knew like if I didn't have it I'm going to miss every project every homework assignment I'm going to forget every test like all of that. Um, I faithfully needed my agenda. And even to this day, my mom consistently buys me planners every single year. So she knows I needed to survive. <laughs> like it's, it's a thing. Um, and I also, I was very, I'm a very poor test taker. It takes me a really long time to finish a test. Um, so I've always noticed that I was always the last one um, to finish tests. Uh, standardized test, whether it was like, you know, a, a quiz in the classroom, I was always the last one because my processing speed is, is um, not that great. Um, so I mastered the idea of me going ahead and go as far as I can the test. And when there's like five minutes left, I'm going to start bubbling and answer so I can get something right. I might, you know, just accidentally get a right answer. And that was my strategy throughout school. Um, and then like even 
uh, in high school, I wanted an accelerated math class because uh, I could understand uh, math is, was my strength, um, and I could understand math very well, but just not as fast as everyone else. But um, I can catch on and uh, learn really, really difficult math concepts. It just takes me a while. So uh, when I would take the standardized test, I would um, score pretty low, like you know, low to like low average. So then when I asked for an accelerated math class, they refused to give it to me. But like I said, I'm very persistent on what I want, what I believe that I need or what anyone else around me needs. So I literally would go to my counselor's office every day and say, hey, I need you to switch me to this, you know, the algebra honors or whatever, the jump challenge or honors class that I needed. Um, and he would deny me or, and, or like, he like say, oh, come back next week or come back next week until it was the last day to switch to classes. And then so I told my mom ahead of time, I'm like, hey, I'm going to refuse to leave the office until they change my schedule so that you know, just in case they call you. <laughs> and I did just that. He's like, and when it came to the end of it, he's like, I'm not going to change your courses because you're you're going to struggle in that class. You're not going to do well. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I'm not a good test taker. That test does not show my ability of what I can actually do in the classroom. Uh, and I'm not going to leave your office until you change my schedule. And he said that, okay, fine, I'll call your mom. Call her. I already told her last night that this is what I was going to do. So instead of having me sit here and yell at you, you'll have two black women yelling in the office. Go ahead. <laughs> and, uh, and I know other kids are not as persistent as me. No, not everyone has that same personality as I do. Um, so they're just going to take the school district's word for that they're dumb or they can't perform at a certain level or that they... Um, can't they don't have the ability to perform that they feel like they really can but these adults are telling me that I can't so I'm going to take their word for it and a lot of kids do that it just stuns me that like the purpose of the education system is I don't know maybe I'm off base here to educate and provide those kind of opportunities so when you have someone who goes hey I would like to try this class not getting out of something like I want to try something harder And the reaction is, mm, you know, like that. What? How ass? Like it's backwards. It's so backwards. Okay. So yeah. with with that kind of thoughts, then. So, um, and I don't want to jump too far ahead in in kind of things, but what what can we like as, as in the education system? What are some better ways that like? we could be more supportive of those individuals, be more supportive of the families. Um, And a big thing too, is like listening to the learner. The learner wants to try this class. And instead of just mm, basing it on a diagnosis, not okay. Versus I don't know what their skill sets are, their potential, things like that. Like what, what are there or are there options, you know? Mm -hmm. And especially, yeah. Listen, just listen to the parents. Listen to the child, um, especially if they're saying, hey, I'm struggling with this. Like, this is really hard for me. Listen to that. Um, listen to the parents say, hey, I believe like my kid is struggling with this or um, I believe my kid is more capable in this area. Listen, they are the, even though you're the expert in the field, they are the expert of their child. The child is the ex- expert of themselves. They understand their own feelings better than you do. So listen, just listen to what they're they're communicating to you and verbally or non-verbally. You look at their body language. What is their body language telling you? If they're not able to 
articulate their needs um, vocally, what what are they saying? Are they engaged? Are um, are they ag agreeing um, with what you're what you're telling them? Um, uh, if, especially if they're super withdrawn and, and disengaged, then there's something wrong there. That means they com they completely checked out and they don't they don't believe you. Um, they don't believe in the process, and we need to switch something up. That was beautifully stated. Um, especially that when, you know, it, it's, it's not so much that I can say like, I have these strengths. Cause you know, like as a elementary school student, I, I, I could tell you probably like I was good at reading. Um, and, but that was, you know, that's the extent of what I knew. I didn't, you know, we don't articulate those things cause we've never been taught those things as small children. But as adults, that's where we can come in and be like, hey, I see you looking this way. Is this how you're feeling? Are we, am I, am I understanding? Am I matching this? And then being able to take that to an IEP meeting or an ARD meeting or whatever the acronym is for your school, like being able to go in and say, hey, when I see this, this is what happens afterwards. But like, you know, the difference mm -hmm. between classes, like, you know, I go to, I go to Miss Naida's class and she's engaging and she's got all these theater things going on and it's fun and exciting. And then I go to, you know, this other person and they're boring. And a lot of times I can see that being labeled as, well, they're just non-compliant and they need to do better in that class. And it's like, mm. or maybe yeah. the, the teacher can step up their game a little bit. Like, so I, Absolutely. The, the, the listen, you know, just it's 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 listening and it's and it's hearing and and listening to more of it um you know i when i go and do interviews or like my initial assessments and everything like i hate having my computer or anything like i just want to like almost have a tape recorder so i can go back and and listen to it later but that way you can provide that like full you know i'm giving you mm -hmm. eye contact my body's position towards you i'm not just and what i see in a lot of meetings tap 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 uh huh Tap, 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 tap. Uh-huh. And, you know, you could say, yeah, yeah there's goats outside, you know, having, I was going to go real, sorry, guys, it's Friday. There's goats outside having an orgy. Um, And they, uh-huh, sure. Okay. And it's like, did you just hear? No, no. Cool. Awesome. So, you know, being able to be, and I think the persistent side too, and this is something that I, you know, I want people, it's persistence in an appropriate way um, because, you know, you don't want to be the one who's screaming and yelling and you're just obnoxious, but like, it's purposeful. Like you said, like, I, I know this thing is something that I need and something that needs to be done. And so I'm going to keep showing you the data and the evidence to show you this. It's not just going in and waving your hands around. So while it's frustrating to have to do that, hopefully, hopefully the more voices that we get saying, Hey, we need we need these things. These things are important. Yeah. The less you know kickback we're going to be getting from you know either medical or educational systems on that. Yeah, and and listening also goes beyond what the person is saying as well. I want to make sure I make that point that a lot, especially a lot of kids um, on the spectrum, have a hard time identifying their own emotions. Um, so you have to look at those those physical cues. Like a kid might be saying, "I'm okay." Or this is fun, but is there is there body language saying that this is fun? Is there body language saying that um, they agree or that this is okay, that they feel okay? Um, and suggest like, hey, I, I hear what you're saying, but your body language is saying X, Y, Z. Um, are you sure? Uh, or I, sometimes I'll put on my stuff. I'm like, hey, it seems like you're feeling X, Y, Z. I'm feeling X, Y, Z. I need a break. So let's take a break together. <laughs> That's one of my I'm favorite just modeling things. that behavior. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's okay to take breaks. Um, we and I think some of this is very Western culture too. Um, of no, we have to go. You know, we've got forty-hour work weeks. Um, fun fact: the forty-hour work week was created because eighty hours was considered too much. So that's the reason mm. we've got forty hours, peeps. Um, not because anyone ever looked at the data, because really our data shows oh. that it's not helpful. <laughs> but we do. We have these weird. You know, I don't want to say compulsions, but this proclivity to be like, no, we have to be on at all times. And no, mate, like your energy only goes so far. And when you're tapped, you're done. And and if we're not careful, those thresholds can get lower and lower and lower. And then when that kid comes in and there's nothing left, that's when these problems start to happen. And it's like they get, you know, the stigma. Oh, well, that's just, you know, Jimmy's just autistic. And no, Uh Jimmy's had a really bad week. And he was done for the day. And so. for me, they would say I was over-emotional or dramatic or <laughs> like, no, I'm burnt out. Go. <laughs> you're a girl. You know? Yeah. And, and you throw yeah. that, you know, you're female. So you're just hormones are too. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> you know, take, a, take a step back. You know, it's everyone's experience is different. We can all go through the exact same roller coaster ride and everyone's going to have a different occurrence through it and they're going to have a different memory mm-hmm. and a different experience. Um, they may be somewhat similar, but yeah, we're all individual in that respect. Yeah. And by doing, I think kind of blanket, uh, well here, we're just going to do this for everybody. It's like, mm, some things work, but a lot of times, like, especially when it gets to really aversive situations, like learning is tough. Being a kid yeah, is tough. Is. Holy crap. Like, I can't even imagine being a kid in this world. Like I grew up in the eighties and nineties. That was pretty tolerable. Um, nowadays it's terrifying. And so right. to, to compound it with like, Oh, well, you know, you have a diagnosis. So therefore these things must happen, or we don't want to give you that diagnosis because well, we don't really have a reason maybe. Yeah. So, um, so you started really with the ABA, um, as you were you know, trying to develop things for your child. Uh, so now with kind of how the discussions have moved, we've had a lot of talks about like consent and mm-hmm. um, as someone said in the chat, uh, ableism and kind of seeing things that could be harmful in the long run. Um, you know, what are your thoughts with ABA? You know, have you in, in the few years that you've been working, you know, not few years, in the years that you've been working, um, how, you know, what kind of changes have you seen and for better, for worse, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts? I'm seeing a lot of um, behavior analysts being more open to uh, trauma-informed care and being open to having more uh, neurodiverse affirming um, practices, which I think is, great. Um, I would say that coming into ABA, some of the practices to me were a little strange coming from the human service and and education background. Um, And also because I understood where the child was coming from being undiagnosed. So I was like, okay, so why are we doing it this way? Why is this behavior not okay for him to just be who he wants to be um, and be comfortable in that. Um, and um, I already had a different mindset of different accommodations for different things, like stuff that probably works for myself as well um, and stuff that works for my son. Um, so I think that I had a different lens on that end because of my own personal experiences in my life um, than 
other people in ABA, but I am seeing I am seeing a, a huge shift in um, people wanting to be more trauma informed, the more and no diverse, um, no diverse um, of funding. So that's great. Um, how I feel about ABA is a mixture, because um, even personally, uh, in my for my son, we've experienced both the harm and um, the positive of ABA. So I would say when he first got into ABA, he was about three and a half. Um, and it was great until about six years old when he needed something a little bit, a little bit less rigid, because um, the the programming that he was experiencing was the typical um, DTT uh, style, um, very rigid um, ABA, and that worked for him for a little bit. So when it stopped working for him, what I wish the provider would have done was expanded their um, their practice on being a little bit more naturalistic, a little bit more um, open, um, instead of trying to force him within that rigidity. Because then he started having extreme emotional outbursts. Um, his anxiety was getting was going up. He started um, showing signs of depression and showing signs of trauma. Um, so that relationship ended really bad. So we ended up switching him to cognitive behavior therapy, and he's thriving a lot better now. Um, so I do believe that ABA is great for a period of time, um, and also it's, ABA is great for certain population of students um, in the rigidity of like DTT in some areas. But then there's also a need for it to be more naturalistic, to be more open, to have more um, ACT um, strategies um, in order to get kids to where they need to go and become functioning adults. So I think we need to be able to examine our practices to be more open and look at the child as an individual. And if it's not working, instead of trying to force that child into your rigidity, be more open to find new ways to be able to, um, to help that child and transition them out to other services um, more seamlessly. More seamlessly because the, I had to seek I had to learn CDT myself in order to get my child into CDT. Um, his ABA provider just gave me a list of other ABA providers that were just as rigid. <laughs> uh, so that was not helpful. So I had to seek out more um, other options for my child as well. Um, and I, that's the reason why I also started some social groups too, so that he could have a social group that I can kind of control the curriculum. <laughs> Um, so that he can get what his what he needs in that area as well. So, um, yeah, that so that's my feelings on ABI. I, I believe in the science. Um, the science is wonderful, um, but the practice needs to be more more inclusive and more open um, to to provide the needs of every child that we have in front of us. Because I even got to the point where it was so rigid, and he was having. Um, such a hard time emotionally that they were trying to suggest that he had emotional disturbance uh, diagnosis as well. So they suggested for him to go see a psychologist to get a diagnosis for either ODD or IED, and I completely disagree with that. And so that's another thing that parents need to be cognizant of is that um, we're all human, including professionals, and we can only work in the capacity that we have. And just because that person didn't have the capacity to give my son what he needs and to assess where he really is, um, 
that doesn't mean that that's the end all be all. You don't have to accept that. Um, so I made sure that that BCBA didn't give that letter to my son's psychologist directly. I made sure it came to me first. I read it, attached my own letter on top of it, <laughs> saying that this is what the BCBA says, but I disagree uh, with her. There might be another component of ADHD here, but um, definitely not um, intermittent explosive disorder or, con or, or conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. That does not describe what's happening here. What's happening here is trauma. And it's only happening in this in this setting. So we're not seeing these same behaviors at home. We're not seeing these same behaviors in the community. It's, it's only in the clinic. So it's not consistent across the board. So these diagnoses don't fit. So I attached my own letter um, to their letter and gave it to the psychologist. And the psychologist agreed with me. But um, a lot of times parents are not as knowledgeable as me. So I have that privilege of being knowledgeable. Of, in the human service field and the education field and also in ADA to know what my child is experiencing. So another parent would have allowed that BCBA to send that letter to their, to their um, kid psychologist and they and might end up with a diagnosis of IED or ODD and that not fit for them. It's, it's disheartening in so many reasons. Um, and a lot of it, you know, the, the long-term effects of that because now that's stuck with the kid for the rest of their academic career. It's going to be in their yeah. folder. Every teacher they go to is going to see that. And even like you see those words and it, it, it's now stuck with you. Like you're going to see that kid and you're going to see those words and it's going to become harder for you to be like, no, 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 no. Put those out of my head. Don't look because we start to try to find those things. And like, mm -hmm. I, I get frustrated with diagnoses. Um, because oftentimes they're coming from people who don't have them. So they're already labeling something that they have no experience with. And it's done to make others feel better in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, like, oh, well, we just don't know what this is. So instead of saying, hey, it's trauma and it's complex as all get out, you know what? Let's just slap this label on it that may or may not accurately cover everything. And now the kid has a stigma and there's, you know, these preconceived notions that go along with it instead of taking the time to unpack because I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's tough. It's, it's really tough to work with humans. Um, and it takes more time up front. but I think like if we do the work up front, we're going to be better off in the end instead of, yeah. you know, these poor kids being 20 years old and getting, you know, they transition out of high school. Now what? So um, thank you so much. You had something in there that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to isolate that for a sound bite. So I'm really excited. <laughs> it was beautiful. Because yeah. uh, it it's the science. It's the science itself. It's like anything. Like There are good doctors. Yeah. There are bad doctors. There's good dentists, mm -hmm. bad dentists. Um, we've got a and really cool you, you might even have a good doctor, but that good doctor may not be a good fit for you. And that's okay. And allowing people to kind of have that freedom. I know I've encouraged a lot of the the caregivers that I work with, like go for a second opinion. Like if you go in mm -hmm. and you don't jive with them or they say something that makes you go, eh, dude, it's okay. But this is also, you mentioned those barriers where a lot of those barriers come in. There is nobody else to go to. Um, this is the only one that I can afford, or this is the only one that speaks my language or has a translator mm -hmm. that can come. So there's so many things that, um, 
as health professionals, BCBAs, you know, whatever capacity you fit in educators, that we need to be aware of that it's not as simple as, you know, he walks in the classroom, math is given, he, you know, has a tantrum and walks out. Like there's so much more to it. Yeah, and that's why we need to be as professionals more flexible. We need to be more flexible. We need to um, make sure that we um, are aware of cultural differences, of personality differences, um, and learn how to adjust to that. Um, and if, if you don't know how to adjust to it in that moment, what I do is I just do nothing in the moment, and then we're, I'm going to go and figure it out, figure it out later. If I need to know more about this person's um, culture, if I need to know more about their personality, more about their their history, their background, their experiences, in order to connect with them and um, and help them learn, then that's what I'm going to do. But if I'm faced with a behavior and I don't know where it's coming from, I don't know what to do, I'm just going to do nothing in the moment and just be there with them and just walk them you know, through it and just be present um, and not try to force um, programming at that time. We're just going to, you know. It's, it's okay. Like these are, these are all learning experiences. And again, if we want to teach, you know, my goal is to, for myself, you know, when my brain starts going in the wrong direction, my anxiety starts rising. What do I do? I stop. I breathe. Mm -hmm. I go through my grounding techniques. Like, where am I? Am I present? Okay. You know, things I can see, things I can touch. And that starts, you know, when they're kids, we can teach those skills. So gosh, darn it. They don't have to be, you know, in their thirties and be in therapy for 50 right. forever. Like it'd be great if we could teach those skills younger instead of so much focus on like, well, you need to learn to sort your colors. Why? Why? You know, well, if I don't do it. What to happen today? Exactly. We're going to have, have more of a capacity tomorrow. We can work on it tomorrow. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it, I, I always find it funny that, um, you know, we work with and we, we talk about the rigidity of autism and these, you know, perseverances and everything. And like, like, it's a bad thing. Um, and I'm like, and yet the way that we teach just fully reinforces that. So if we want to, you know, generalize more expressive kinds of therapy, like incorporating theater and improv and art and, you know, movement and everything, like for me, I see that much more beneficial because yeah, that's going to generalize. I can learn. If I can mm-hmm. learn in a crazy hectic environment, I can probably learn in a calmer environment. Yeah. So being able to kind of take those things in consideration. And like you said, like being flexible with it. Um, yeah. and, and really like just even like a, a really cool example. Um, I was, uh, a mom had reached out to me about her daughter and getting her hair brushed. She has a hard time tolerating getting her hair brushed, but then her hair gets matted. So easily but um she's a, a white a little white girl and of course I've never had to deal with <laughs> with straight hair <laughs> but I don't know but in the moment I'm like well I don't know so I'm going to talk with my colleagues and see what we can come up with because I, I don't know I, I'm not going to come up with a plan uh for something that I have no experience in so even being African-American and um being a woman I have those intersectionalities I even have to stop and like okay I don't know what to do with, you know, in this culture. So I had to go and ask my RBT who was of the same culture as the client, like, hey, what do you do for your hair? What is the what is the correct uh, way to care for your hair and, and to make sure it doesn't get as matted? So I had to seek that education for myself. We have to be open to seeking that type of education. Like, hey, what do what are the norms for you to get what you need to accomplish? 
um, in your culture, in, uh, in your environment, um, before we just go in and start programming. I could totally come up with a program on how I would do my hair, right? <laughs> or how, uh, or like the, you know, the stereotypical way of in my culture, how we would um, handle that situation. But I, I stopped and I literally told him, I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Let me, let me convene with my colleagues and I will come up with a plan and I'll let you know. Cause I don't know how to deal with your hair and I'm not going to pretend like I can't <laughs> on my own. And someone's made a, a comment in the chat about, you know, being comfortable asking those questions because yes. it is. Um, I mean, I sit very close to the inner privilege circle being a white uh, human female. And so it's, it's, it, it's something that, you know, I, I have gotten better over time. And like I said, I like learning from people and it's, there's, you know, we just have to be aware of like how the tone is. It's not that I'm going to come at you and be like, Oh my gosh, tell me how you do this. Like in a very, you know, demeaning way, but it's more of like, yeah, I literally have no experience and no knowledge and I want to learn more. So mm-hmm. whatever you can throw at me, like, I love, hate the internet. If I need to find out more information, I start there. I look at my colleagues. Like you said, you know, Hey, you have hair that looks similar to my clients. What do you use? Right. <laughs> makes total sense. You know, there's, you know, clothing that can be uncomfortable. Like, oh man, I love what you're wearing because the texture looks really soft. Can you tell me, you know, where did you find it kind of things? Because mm-hmm. maybe that's more comfortable than like, you know, cotton or rayon. So, you know, normalize asking appropriate questions. I mean, it's not being nosy. It's really just, hey, I, I, I need this information um, to help better a little human in some cases. Exactly. So, one of the things that I kind of wanted to go back to, um, you were talking about, you know, getting getting prepared for your BCBA, getting your BCBA and going through all of that, but also having testing difficulties. And the BCBA exam is not, um, what's, what's the word, uh, user-friendly in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, it's a very intimidating uh, experience because like you have to sign up. And at the time that I took it, and I'm sure the time that you maybe took it was, you know, you only had like four times during the year that you could take it possibly. Like you had four months. And if you didn't make one of those months, then you had to wait. And so that was stressful. And then you had to wait like 45 days afterwards or 60 days afterwards. And so that was really stressful. Um, So some of those are a little bit better. But there's also just like going to the testing center. It has to be Mm -hmm. super quiet. Like you can't have gum. You can't have water. Like there's so many like don't do this, don't do this, rules, regulations. And for someone who's autistic or has a learning disability, like that just increases your stress level. So with kind of those thoughts in mind, you know, what are some ways that we could maybe do better with testing? Um, you know, maybe not just for BCBAs, but for professionals in general, but kind of focusing on BCBAs. Yeah, um, definitely uh, allow, um, letting them know that testing accommodations are available to them. Um, so I did have testing accommodations. I got time and a half and a private testing room. Um, so I just got a letter from my psychologist that uh, diagnosed me with GAD. And um, and also in the testing process, it showed that I have a low processing speed and, um, and a low working memory as well. Um, so she used that to be able to justify me needing extra time um, and me needing a private testing room. Um, so I was able to get those accommodations. I probably would not pass the test if I didn't have those accommodations, to tell you the truth. Uh, I, uh, when I be, was, um, was trying to become a teacher before I was deciding to become a DCBA, um, I had a hard time with the, the examinations for, for teachers as well. 
I passed most of them, but I was really struggling with secondary math, um, which is crazy because I'm really good at math. Is just the processing speed and the working memory that was getting in my way. Um, so I was I had a hard time passing that test, and I would literally like run out of time every single time. And like I said, the last five minutes I was just bubbling in answers just to try to see hopefully that I could accidentally get enough questions <laughs> right to pass. Um, but um, I didn't for the secondary math one, but um, for definitely for the BCA exam, I did make sure that I reached out to my psychologist to um, ask for testing accommodations. And I think we need to normalize that a little bit more. And we need to make sure that we tell people that that's available if they need it. And it doesn't mean that um, it's a ding on their ability just because they need those accommodations. But some people feel like, well, I don't want to get the accommodations. That means I'm not knowledgeable or I'm not um, capable if I if I do it. So just trying to normalize that as much as possible because we all we all learn differently. Um, and then so if you need those accommodations, take them. And I and I stress that with other people that I mentor that are not in the same professional field as I am. I'm, and I know that they're struggling. I'm like, hey. Get those testing accommodations. Just have your psychologist uh, write you a letter on the accommodations that you need and you can get it. A lot of people really don't know that it's available. All right. If you are listening for CEs, this is the first of your two keywords. Your first word is resources. R-E-S-O-U-R-C-E-S. Not everyone has the resources to access services. No, because like you mentioned, there's such a stigma that goes with it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, you know, heaven forbid I tell somebody that I have, you know, anxiety because they're going to look at me different. Well, that's on them. And if they're going to look at you different, then they might not be worth your time. And I kind of feel that way with accommodations. Like if you go to ask for help and someone blows you off or dismisses you, then like, like you said, find somebody else. Like Mm -hmm. if, if this is supposed to be something that we're supporting people on, um, and, and again, you know, looking at experiences and everything, and we want to have these broad cultures, like broad culture includes not just different races or genders or sexuality, but also learning skills, disabilities, impairments, things like that. Like that's what makes it such a fascinating culture. And if we're not setting up the environment to where I don't, I'm saying those people, and I apologize for wording it that way, um, but like for that population, then what the heck are we doing? Like we're, we're completely mm-hmm. isolating. It's, you know, I've, it's, I, I've been wondering and kind of asking, so anybody, please feel free to reach out to me on this with like um, blindness or deafness and seeing like, because looking at our field and our profession and everything, I, I feel like we limit that kind of population. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, being able to, you know, kind of take this step back and be aware of like, okay, what is my, you know, not just our field, but like our company. So the company that you work for, you know, taking a look back and being like, you know, who are we hiring? Um, Are we making sure that we're accommodating these individuals? Are we checking in with people on a regular basis to make sure that we're still doing this too? Um, Because like with schools, I know a lot of times like you get one meeting a year sometimes, um, unless like you're, yeah. you're, you're persistent and it's like, nope, we need to have this. And one meeting a year does not a good program make, you know, right. because it, it's, you know, the data is not the full year typically. So I think there's a lot of things that we kind of look at and change um, to make things more accommodating for everyone because um, everyone has yeah. a good purpose. 
and, and also like creating an environment where people can ask for their accommodation. Um, you know, as long as they're they're accessible, I mean, it, it shouldn't be a problem. Um, like one accommodation I have at work is um, because I'm doing in home. I'm driving from you know house to house. I need an hour between between clients. Thirty minutes is it, it does not cut it for me. <laughs> Because for one, I have a lot of anxiety with driving. Driving is extremely stressful for me. So I need a, I need a few minutes to be able to decompress before I go into the next house. Um, because if I go from straight from driving into someone's house, I'm not going to be good. <laughs> good experience for anyone. Um, so just being open to allowing your employees to have accommodations and being open to speak up when you need the, the accommodation as well. Um, but even if, even if, like, talking about driving, that's one thing that I really struggled with as a teenager was learning how to drive. It took me two years to learn how to drive and because I, I just hate it so much and it's so stressful for me. Um, and it took me seven times of taking the driving test to pass it. And it's embarrassing. <laughs> but, yeah, it took me seven times to take the driving test to actually pass it. And to this day, I refuse to drive other people's cars. I've even had some members, like, you know, like, hey, you can drive my car. And I'm like, no, I won't. I have to drive my car and if I do get like a rental car it has to be super similar to my car like I can't I get it and and, and yeah. I think those are kind of the little things that people forget about is um you know what what takes up your energy um what mm-hmm. you know can impact you in in little ways that we forget about so like having a different car you know, that kind of already sets your day off off kilter. So it's like, okay, now I'm, I'm already aware that like, I'm not super in the right mind state. So now I'm going to have to spend more energy getting myself to that point. And we forget that those things also happen to our clients. You know, mom bought new shampoo and it smells different, or she mm-hmm. washed my clothes in a new detergent and I don't like the way that it smells, or I like it too much. And now I'm kind of obsessing over it deal. And, you know, just being aware of, you know, not looking at it every time is like, well, what is the function of this? Is it attention escape avoid, you know, going through our typical, exactly. but like take a step back, man, expand your vision on it and go, okay, what else could be potentially going on? You know, get creative. Exactly. That's one of, you know, that's one of the things that I do like about our science is it's so applicable that we can get creative with it. Like you said, you're yes. using art therapy and improv in these beautifully strategic ways. So it's not just yeah. off the cuff, um, but it's, hey, this is the purpose of why we're doing this. And I think Absolutely. that's there's so goals attached to everything. Even though we're doing art, there's, a, there's specific goals that are attached to what we're doing, the activity that we're engaged in. Yeah. I was writing up a scavenger hunt program yesterday because scavenger hunts are awesome. And it's like, what are the skills that can go into this? You know, it's matching, it's sorting, mm-hmm. it's following directions. And it also, I think, is... A, more encompassing that way because it's not, well, let's sit down and look at our papers and color in like, okay, maybe, you know, coloring's hard because I don't have fine motor skills um, or they're underdeveloped or my vision's not mm-hmm. great. And so the the words are blurry or I have dyslexia and the words are blurry. Like there's so many other things that we can do to be accommodating. Um, Absolutely. So, so I'm taking a quick look at, yeah, some puts little triggers can become big distractions. Yeah. And absolutely, and day to day things can change too, guys. Hour to hour, um, you know, it's one thing can kind of set you off. Like I was telling Naida earlier, I cannot find my headphones, and this is completely just disrupted—not these, um, but my actual earbuds that I take with me when I'm out in public, so that I don't have to hear anybody else. And 
it, it disrupts things. And so, you know, little, little things. And when you're a little person um, or you've not been told what your emotions are, because that's a huge thing too, that we should discuss with children is like, Hey, when you feel this way, this is how other people label it. Um, and so when you feel this way, you can use that kind of language, but like they don't, they're little and things are different and they're usually experiencing things for the first time. So something that we might think is, Oh, well, psh, it's just a little deal. It's not a little deal to them because this is the first time I've ever dealt with it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Are we taking questions? I think. Sure. If you guys want to throw some questions in there, I'm also. I thought someone had their uh, hand raised. Ooh. Someone had their hand raised. Someone want to jump on? I am hitting too many buttons. That's okay. Um, so one of the things is we're kind of looking at this. Of let's see maybe more specifically going into um, because we've touched a little bit on the ableism side and you said that there were some programs that you've come in contact with that made you kind of go. So from your perspective, what are just some of the main areas that BCBAs professionals should be aware of that are kind of like, we'll say covert ableism. Like for me, Mm -hmm. my first one is the eye contact. Like eye contact is big. And eye contact is also cultural too. It's not even just, um, it's not, it's not um, isolated to um, the autistic community, but it's also cultural. I've had a hard time teaching eye contact because I don't know how much eye contact is appropriate <laughs> and when. Um, and it's hard to really teach that. So it's just like, you're, you're expecting to, you're expecting this eye contact, but you don't know it, it, when and where is is it's appropriate, um, even if it if it's appropriate, because um, even culturally, like um, in the African American community, we don't look at each other for every little thing. We can literally spend a whole day with each other um, and have a whole conversation and not look at each other not one time. And um, and so I, early on when I was working in ABA night, um, was forced to. Uh, target eye contact, I had to remember to give my own eye contact. I'm like, wait, I haven't got this child in 30 minutes. Let me look up really quickly. I'm like, we're just engaged in activities. I'm like, I haven't, I haven't looked at the child to even know if they're even engaging in eye contact with me. Let me look up a few times, you know? So, um, so it's not, so that's a big one is, is eye contact. Um, I would also say not accounting for sensory issues. Um, we do that a lot. Uh, there might be fluorescent light in your in your clinic um, that might be bothering a child, um, different sounds, feelings um, that could be bothering them, um, even like sounds of voices and elevation of voices could be very bothersome <laughs> um, for some people. So really fully understanding the scope of um, sensory-related issues um, and also coping allowing the kids to use what they use to cope. If they need to carry a rock or a toy or and allowing and giving them the space to be able to do that um, and also giving them the space to say no when they need to say no um, because they don't have the capacity to engage um, at that moment. Um, and I'm not saying not to push kids to do anything at all. We do want to push them to grow and push them to learn, but letting them know that their no means no and letting them be able to accommodate themselves if they need to. So yeah, I don't care if 
someone is 30 and they have to carry their lucky rock in their pocket in order to go to work or, uh, or go to the grocery store, if that's what they need to do, I'm not going to take that away from them. And that's not something that's going to really impede on their life. I think that's such a huge, huge thing. Um, and I, you know, I twirl my hair as my calming thing. And I remember I, too. I twirl the end of my locks. That's why the end of my locks look like this. They have like pieces that have been pulled off and stuff. I literally just twirl my locks <laughs> all the time. Um, and it's, it's soothing. And so allowing kids to be able to do that, like swimming, um, if it's not impeding their everyday lives, let them swim. You know, there's, I mean, of course, there's some stems that might be disruptive in the classroom. Like my son has a really high pitch, like squealing sound, and that's his vocal stem. And he can't do that all day long in the classroom because it's very disruptive. Um, but he can hum, so we can minimize that by like, like, letting him hum um, appropriately in class. And his fidget toys that he uses in class too, when he's done with his classwork, waiting for the next thing is very difficult for him. So he has his fidget. Um, and then if the some teachers are like, oh, well, if I let him have fidgets, then everyone in the classroom, I, um, I have to allow them to play with toys, too. But I'm like, no, you don't, because we can teach kids about equity, too. Equity is a thing, and it's, and it's um, very important um, for all of us. So it's great to teach kids at a certain age, like, hey, no, you, you don't need that accommodation. Billy needs it. So Billy gets that accommodation, and he goes to be able to focus and learn. And we're going to make sure you have everything you need to be able to focus and learn. So don't you want Billy to be able to get all everything that you need to be able to focus and learn? And it's, and it's okay to teach kids about equity as well. Because sameness is not fairness. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and you said it like the, the wording, um, you know, well, I have to let all of the other kids play with a toy. No, 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 no. It's not playing. It is again, it's purposeful. Um, and, and, and this is something too, that I, I've started incorporating in my own programming is writing up what the rationale is for the program. Um, because since I, I don't work directly with RBTs, so, I mean, it's me usually working with caregivers. And so a lot of times if I say, Hey, we're going to do this program, um, you know, we've talked about it. So they have a little bit of buy-in, but if there's like a day hub staff member or, um, like maybe a transportation person and they don't understand, you know, well, why do I have to give them 10 extra seconds after I give an instruction? Like, well, here's the reason why, because there's a thing called mm-hmm. processing time. And you as a neurotypical human are lucky in the fact that you can process almost immediately. This person exactly. does not have that luxury. And explaining it in that way of, it's not that we do things just out of the blue. Like I didn't just write this program, you know, out of nowhere. Like we teach these things for a reason, or we have these accommodations for a reason. And that also helps, again, set those boundaries for kids. They learn what they need to do better. It's not, I go, I go get to play with my toy. It's, oh, this toy keep, helps keeps me focused. So mm-hmm. maybe I do need to keep it when I get older, or maybe as I get older, it gets replaced with something else, um, you know, whatever, whatever. And, you know, getting, we also get married to our programs for way too long. That's a whole different talk. Yeah. So, you know, making sure that we're moving them along like developmentally and everything too. And, and so, um, but yeah, so I, I, I love that idea of, you know, let's teach equity. Let's teach the ability to yeah. have coping skills and to, and especially the, the ability to say no um, and, and, and for people not to freak out when a child tells you no, because it is a little bit disconcerting. You're like, oh, 
small human. <laughs> you, you're disagreeing yeah. with me, but then take it down a notch. Okay, cool. Why? Why don't you want to do this? And for kids that can express that, mm-hmm. awesome sauce. For individuals that don't have that ability yet, it's a good teaching opportunity for everybody. You get to learn more about that individual and kind of you know, tease apart, okay, yeah. what's the mystery here? And then now we get to learn together how to go through this in a more productive, more beneficial way for all of us. Absolutely. I even had, even last week, I, would, I have a client I've been working on him speaking up and expressing his, um, his feelings. And last week he had a really bad stomach ache and I could see it in his face. He's like, my stomach hurts really bad. I think we need to cancel today is what he said to me. And I said, okay, we're done. And his, and his grandma looked at me like, you're really just going to leave because of child <laughs> I'm like, he's, his stomach really hurts. Like, I can see it in his face and his body language. Like, thank you so much for telling me that you need to cancel today. I will see you tomorrow. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and you know, it, and this is where you, people start to do the whole, well, what if? Well, what if he asks for it every single time I come over? Well, then we'll address it at that point. But right now, if exactly. I say, if right I didn't... Now, if I deny it, then, you know, what if I just told him his voice doesn't matter? I don't care that you're sick or you don't feel good. We're going to do what I say. Holy shnikes. Mm-hmm. Not okay. Not okay. And, I'm, and I know this kid, so he, he likes his routine. He's not going to want to cancel unless if there's something really going on. And since I've been working on with him for the last year on expressing his feelings, I'm going to honor that today. Even if it's going to be a take cut for me, but it's okay. We're going <laughs> to No, I think that's absolutely beautiful. Um, and, and I'm saying that it can get complicated. Um, and yeah, it, it's because you, you, it is you, complicated. It's towing, it, it's towing a you line. Really have to, you really have to judge it in the moment. So you ha- it depends on the kid and it depends on the moment and it depends on your goals for that kid. So there is, um, there are times where I will push a kid if I feel like they're just, being lazy that day so you have to really look at their body language look at what they're saying um and you have to know their personality some kids really generally just want to get out of doing everything so i'll do push sometimes but this kid um he loves his routine he never cancels with me and i've been working one of his goals is for him to speak up so i'm going to reinforce the fact that he expressed how he was feeling um and what his need was in that moment. So I saw it in his face that he did not have it today, that he was, so I honored that, that he was able to recognize that he didn't have it today. And, um, and he, and he just can't, he can't do it today. So I saw it and that's something I've been working on him with. So I'm not going to not reinforce that because I've been working, working on that this whole time. So I'm like, I got what I want. Yes. We're going to honor that and see you later. See you tomorrow. <laughs> But it is complicated. It's not something that you can apply to every single client um, that you're working with. You have to really judge in the moment, really listening, looking at their body language, um, and, and knowing when to push and when to pull back. Um, especially if you're dealing with a kid who's experienced a lot of trauma. Um, if you're not a licensed psychologist and know, you know where to push with trauma, if you're if you're seeing a trauma-induced uh, behavior, it's best to pull back and uh, refer them to someone who can help address their trauma. Yeah, the importance of collaborating and the importance of 
you know, a- acknowledging that request. And to, like, it also builds up trust. Like, had he said, hey, I don't feel good. Can, you know, we take a break today? Can we cancel? And you've been like, nope. Well, okay, now I don't like you as much anymore. And like, you, you hurt that relationship as opposed to sitting down, listening, mm-hmm. taking that moment to be like, okay, are you doing this to get out of something? Nope, you legit don't feel good. Cool beans, man. This is not the time to push. Oh, yeah. I love what uh, Christy said, that parents need to know that it's okay to cancel a session if their kid is having a bad day. That, you know, oftentimes parents are hit with consequences from ABA companies for canceling. That is so true. That is so true. So we have to be that we have to be able to be flexible to allow parents um, that flexibility as well. And that's and another. You have some parents who might take advantage of that. So you, it really is a case by case thing because you might have parents who will take take advantage of canceling all the time because they don't want to be bothered. Um, but if it's a family who's pretty consistent, um, and they need to know that cancellations are okay. Um, and because yeah, the, the grandma could have called me and say, hey. His stomach is hurting. Don't come today. Um, but he didn't want to cancel. But me saying, okay, yeah, we can cancel today, gave them the room. Like, okay, yeah, if we really do need to cancel, um, then we have that flexibility to be able to do that. Because like, this is a son who's usually pretty consistent. I wouldn't. So it's a case by case thing because some parents will just cancel all the time because um, they don't want to be bothered. So you want to avoid that too. So it can be it can be pretty complicated. But it lends itself to, I think, a good discussion. And we've talked about having that verbal community and having somebody and a colleague that you can go to. So like going to them and saying, hey, uh, the Smiths keep canceling on me. Maybe it's me. <laughs> you know, can can we give a call? Like yeah. we, ha- we have a Shanna in our company and because she's awesome. Um, and she is our... She calls people and she checks in and she finds out how things are going. And we've been able to kind of troubleshoot some of those issues by like, yeah, this wasn't a great fit. We've been kind of forcing it, but like, but the therapist is a little on edge and the parents are a little on edge. And so just being able to have that freedom to say, hey, things aren't, things aren't driving right now. Like it's not, we're not working or just something is off. And yeah, because too often, I think other professions, you go into a doctor's office, do this, do this, do this, do this. You go into your psychiatrist office, take this, take this, take this. You go to your counselor and they'll listen, but then they'll also usually provide some tools and everything. And I think that we have this unique opportunity because we're kind of involved in these families we work with of what's the whole big picture and what what do we need to do that's best for this whole big picture. Um, starting with the one that I'm working with and then in building it on back. And so if that's teaching the parents that they can have permission to say, I don't like what's going on, or I need a break or mm-hmm. something like that, because so many of them, like you said, the education's not there. They've never been told that it's okay to tell a professional no or the, to disagree with them. And so, yeah, you show mm-hmm. up and they're stressed out. And then, you know, we just see these horrible consequences afterwards. So, um, Oh, yeah, someone says they have a pre-session checklist to report behavioral signs, which I think is awesome. Yeah, Ooh, how's your day cool. been going? Yeah, you know, um, I was speaking with another um, advocate, and I, I this image will forever stick in my brain because I was working with one of my guys, and we've been together for like six years, um, and we've done a lot of work on communication because he's non-vocal verbal, um, but he is so receptive with pictures, and he's so stinking smart. And it was one of those moments where like. 
I didn't know all of the things leading up to it. So our goal was to go to the park and take a walk. And we get there and he's adamant, refusing. Just, nope, I'm not getting out of the car. To the point that had his shirt pulled up over his head. Dude, what is happening right now? Like, I've okay, I understand you don't want to do this. What is going on? Mom starts then telling me, oh, yeah, well, we went for a longer walk this week. Oh, yeah, there's dogs at the dog park and he's afraid of dogs. Shoot. My bad. And so being able to have, I think, like this checklist would be amazing for that because you can, you know, and even having a checklist for the kid. Like that's something cool that I like yeah. seeing when kids go into schools of like, how's your day to day? What do you need today? You know, do you need some extra attention? Do you need to be left alone? Um, you know, and, and we can put some words on it. Like my mother always called me a hedgehog. Um, you know, I was, I, I wanted attention, but I was prickly. And so it's like, well, do you, do you need a hug today or do you just need a pat on the head? And I think that those are just little things that, you know, we can kind of incorporate to move away from forcing, you know, what we expect to go onto it and being more mm-hmm. accommodating to what the child needs or what the parent needs. You know, I've had sessions where I had a parent, um, I walked in and they said, you and I are talking today. They're fine. I'm not fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> and it was, it was great because they realized that their threshold was starting to slip a little bit. And they're like, I, I just mm-hmm. need some support. I need, I need to vent at somebody. I need to, and, and, you know, troubleshoot ideas. And a lot of times that's kind of what we are for some people is, all right, throw your ideas at me and we'll see what sticks and we'll talk about it. And, and I, I see that as being a much more beneficial relationship as opposed to coming in and going, I know what's best for you and your child, even though I'm not mm-hmm. you. Right. Just, you know, we definitely need to be working with people and not trying to fix them and force them to be within our rigid, uh, rigid idea of how a family should be or how a child should act, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, I know the schools have looked a certain way for a certain while, but I'm like, you know, we've shown that it hasn't really been as productive as we think it was. So why not, why not change something, you know, just, just throw something else in there and just see what happens. You know, if it doesn't work, cool. That's the joys of science. We try something, you take some data on it. Did it Mm -hmm. work? Did it not work? Cool. And then we go from there. So, okay. Awesome. This has been absolutely fantastic, guys. You've had some wonderful comments in the chat. So if there's any other questions or commentary, please feel free to to jump in, jump on, I don't know, add things, um, share. So otherwise, I am going to... I will give... Um, yeah, uh, partial school days. Um, I f- fully agree oh, with that. So it's... And that's something that I really struggled with when I was doing early intervention was these poor babies would be at school for eight hours and then they have to deal with me for the next two. And I don't want to deal with me at the end of the day. (laughs) It's a lot. It really is is a lot. And I think that's kind of where, you know, I'm going to keep going back to the theater because theater teaches you to to become a character um, and to kind of investigate. And so, you know, when you look at your littles, you know, become that little character, you know, kind of remember, you know, what was it like when I was a kid? Um, What were the things that I liked or didn't like or things that people said to me or how they acted that turned me on, turned me off, you know, think, you know, those kind of little things. And that helps build our perspective for other people and that, that improved self-awareness of, okay, the rest of the world experiences things different than I do. Um, and yeah, there yeah, are some I even kids. just remembering like as an adult, 
Um, a lot of us worked full time while we were getting our master's degrees in higher education and had to go to class in the evening, like how tired you were, right? Um, going to work all day and then having to go to class in the evening, like our, our kids feel the same way. Like, let's try to make this a little bit as much engaging as we can and not make them feel like they are have more school after school because uh, we're with them for a significant amount of hours. Um, let's make it as much as, as engaging as we can. Yeah, I don't know if I could handle like 10 hours of schooling a day. Like, I think I would have thrown multiple tantrums. So it makes sense. Um, All right. I am going to maybe do things. Come on, computer. Work with me. It's technology. It's fine. Actually impressed. Knock on wood. We have not had. A lot of our clients do leave school. So there were some comments in it that there's a lot of clients that end up leaving school and schools get mad that there's pullouts. And I mean, because I know the schools have like, you know, they have to you know keep um, a number of kids in school for a certain amount of hours per day to get their funding and stuff, you know. Um, but I think we do need to create an option for kids to be able to go to school half day and they get therapy half day. I think that would have been a perfect um, equation for my son, too, because um, I didn't mention that um, we did retain him for a school year. So he's technically supposed to be in the second grade and he's in the first grade because we decided for him to do therapy instead of going to school once he became um, school age. So um, he could have still gone to the second grade, but I think with putting him back in first grade, it was more appropriate um, based on his skill level and um, his stress at the time. So, but I think that would be a great option if he could have done school half day and therapy the second half out again perfect or let ABA in these schools and the whole concept like when it because the funding is at risk it just makes my skin crawl because again I go so what's more important your your money or I don't know the youth and the future of our country and the world kind of deal like for me I'm like I would rather invest in this child who's going to be getting a job hopefully in the next 20 years and contributing to society like that's my goal for it um and the funding is important too because that's going to be able to afford us to be able to buy things and resources for our students to be able to you know buy books and invest in technology invest in art so it's it is important you know for funding but um, on the same token, is like a good solution is to let ABA in school. That way, the kids are still at school. They're still shown as that they're there, um, but they're being pulled out by their RVP and to go back to class if they need to. You know, like Christy said, it's a high level conversation because the schools have to comply with the laws, um, the day exactly. programs, the residential facilities. When you're working with adults, they have certain stipulations like mm-hmm. I can't be there at the same time as OT and PT because yeah. this, this and this. And I'm like, even though you're asking me for help on behaviors that are occur during these sessions and I kind of. And so, yeah. It's a conversation that, I mean, if you are a political person or like you're an advocate, um, you're persistent like Maida, please go forth and have these conversations. Um, I will gladly have them here all the time because it's, yeah, something something needs to change um, in, in our system because we're about to be in a world of hurt because um, a lot of these, you know, my babies that I first started working with years ago are now 21, 22 years old and going out into the world. And I'm like, okay, some of you had great opportunities, but I know that a lot of mine didn't. 
And so it's, mm-hmm. it's concerning, you know, where are they going to end up? What's going to happen? Um, and this is actually a really interesting question. So um, a clinical psychologist, neurodiverse children are sent to me for diagnosis and behavioral intervention. So you're kind of the bad guy for labeling. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you do laugh about it. So what are some recommendations in being able to know the difference between kids that just can't versus kids that won't and the kids that just don't want to comply? So what are, what are your mm. thoughts on that? Yeah, <laughs> it's a very good I, question. Uh, what I'm, it is a very good question, and it's a complicated question, but you do have to pull on your community. Um, so I'm not an occupational therapist. I'm not a speech therapist. I'm not a psychological therapist. So if I feel like there might be, there might be a chance that there's something else going on that I'm going to, um, you know, seek advice from my community, um, or refer them for something that I feel like is out of my scope. So we have to be honest um, about what might be within our scope. Um, and if we're working on a goal for a really long time, for an extent of a long time, and we're not seeing any progress, then there might be something else going on that, that that's not being addressed. Or if we're seeing some extreme behaviors um, with a goal for a very long time, then there might be something else going on here. Yeah. You know, ask questions, investigate. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I like to think of our, you know, we're, we're detectives Um, and, and it's, you know, part of our due diligence to, to seek out information, to take data, to ask other people, you know, are you seeing this in your sessions? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, are there certain times of the day that can be triggering? Um, So, you know, more discussion about like, is it skill deficit, performance deficit? Uh, You know, can you demonstrate it here or can you demonstrate it everywhere? So I think those are really cool things. Especially when we target like vocal behaviors, I always want to consult with their speech therapist. Like, hey, um, you know, is is there any other diagnoses or any other skill deficits that are getting in the way? Um, Is this a good goal for us to work on an ADA um, as well before... I've tried targeting those, um, those specific things. So that's an example. I, think it's beautiful. I, I have another client now who um, I've been working with him for a while for social emotional learning. He's learned the coping skills and how to express his feelings, but he needs a little bit of help, a little bit more help unpacking his anxiety, a little bit more help um, unpacking his trauma than I can get. So I'm referring him out to someone else. Like, hey, I need, you know, um, I need some help in this area that, I don't feel like I'm equipped to be able to help him with. Yeah. And collaboration is so important um, because as much as behavior analysts like to think we know everything um, and we think that our science is the best one out there, we we can always learn from other people. Um, And I mean, especially like speech OTPT, they've got some really cool things um, and they have more understanding of anatomy and physiology than I ever will. Yeah, even like uh, my son, we were when he was an ABA, they were teaching him how to tie his shoes for like two years. And then he goes to OT and he learned how to tie his shoe in a month. I'm like, <laughs> you know, so it's just we when we're working on a goal for a, a while and you're not seeing any progress and it's, there might be something else going on there. So this is actually another good extension question, too, is like, you know, we've talked about diagnoses. Um, 
And if you look at the DSM, you know, there's, hey, it has to happen, you know, this many out of this many symptoms for this amount of time, yada, yada, yada. If you go back and you read Bessel van der Kolk and the guys that created the DSM, they never intended it to become a checklist manual. Um, it was just supposed to be kind of like a, hey, here's how other people's brain work sometimes and some thoughts on that. Um, yeah. And so now it has really kind of come down to like, oh, well, you check these boxes off. So therefore you are this diagnosis. Okay, fine. If that makes my understanding or the world's understanding of me better, cool. But this is a really good question of being able to tease apart. Is it autism? Um, is it a potential other diagnosis? Um, is it just poorly developed social skills because they come from a home where those things aren't practiced? Um, you know, their social emotional equivalency is low. Um, their social understanding, like I was an only child who moved every three years. Um, so I had really still have awkward social skills because I didn't have anybody to practice on. <laughs> so it's, you know, it, so the question is, you know, how can we tease, tease those things apart? And I know my answer is investigate more, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Okay, the second of your two keywords is persistent. P-E-R-S-I-S-T-E-N-T. Be persistent when seeking help and services. Yeah, I, I agree. Like we do need to investigate more and um, and pull on um, you know other people in different fields to have a more well-rounded um, service um, and to look at other peer-reviewed articles outside of ADA um, that's going to help us be able to understand our clients better and understand, you know, how, what, where, they, where they are in a more well-rounded way. Um, so I do, I read a lot of um, um, research articles in psychology and OT, um, PT to, to make sure that, um, that I'm a well-rounded person. I'm not saying I'm going to be an expert just by reading these research articles, but at least I can have apply it into my practice to make sure that I'm meeting a need. Um, and if it's something further that I don't know, then I'm, of course, going to refer out. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a different world. Um, and again, we know we are speaking very Western culture, USA, North America based, because um, it looks different if you go to India or if you go to Europe or you go to uh, African countries. Like the understanding of of disabilities in general um, and the acceptance or non-acceptance in a lot of cases. Um, and, and that's something to consider too, is, you know, with culture, a lot of times, you know, I, I've, I worked with one family that was from the Middle East and the, and the mom kept asking, so when's he going to get better? When's he going to be cured? Uh, that, that's, that's not a, a thing. Um, so, and it, it was a, it was a really difficult discussion because we had to keep discussing about like, well, it, it's what the, you know, what his skills levels are. And it's not so much, he's going to have this diagnosis um, probably for the rest of his life. And it was, it was a huge moment. Um, and I don't know if the parent ever actually yeah. fully understood that, but I mean, more things to consider because in that culture that she was from autism, wasn't a thing. And then, yeah. and then I've even heard of like in some cultures, um, they feel like disabilities means that their child is, is um, demon possessed, that it's a spiritual thing and it's not a physiological thing too. Um, so it's just like you have to be cognizant of that um, and be sensitive to that too. So of course, we know that's not true, 
Um, but just to be sensitive to that and have compassion um, for that family's culture um, and, you know, to make sure that they're open to learn. Because if we come in defensive and telling them well, what you believe is not true, um, then they're going to have the defenses up and that's going to negatively impact the child. So we have to make sure that we're being, we're teaching, um, but being also compassionate and sensitive to the culture as well. Check your biases at the door. Absolutely. Check your biases. And we all have them. So don't say that you don't. I, I, I don't like when people say that they don't have any biases. Like we all do. Some way, somewhere, somehow. Doesn't mean you're racist. Doesn't mean you're sexist. It doesn't mean that you're uh, ableist. It's, but you have to understand where your biases are and where your own personal traumas are, too, um, so that you're not um, negatively impacting your clients in that way. So identify your own traumas and identify your own biases. Um, and then when you're facing a situation, be able to question yourself and say, hey, why do I feel like the client needs to work on this? Is it really impacting their environment is really impacting their ability to um, get access to what they need. I think that's beautiful. And that's a wonderful, I think, summation um, of, of the talk. But I would love to, as we're kind of looking at time and everything, um, I do want to be respectful. So do you have any last minute thoughts, words of wisdom that people can take home with them? Um, go change the world. Yeah, pretty much. Don't stop learning. Keep learning and be, um, give yourself some grace. You know what you know today and um, it's okay to realize that you might have done something wrong in the past. So give yourself some grace and don't stop learning is what I would say. I love it. What was the last little bit? Give yourself grace and what? And never stop learning. And never stop learning. Yes. All of those things. I mean, yeah, guys. Learning is, I don't know, I enjoy learning, um, which is why I love, I love these talks because it's, it's been fantastic. Um, thank you so much. Um, if you are okay with sharing, can you give some people on how they can find you? So if people want to reach out and connect, what's the best way to find you on that? Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm Naida Abernathy. You can add me as a friend. Um, I do have a couple of YouTube channels. Um, Nightcore is one. And I also am starting a new one called Creative ADA. Um, I'll be posting the first video um, this weekend. Um, so if you want to learn how to do a few things more creative um, in ABA, I will be doing that. I will be sharing like goals that are attached to those creative activities as well. Um, so if you're interested in that, then subscribe to Creative ABA um, on Instagram. I'm also, you can find me at, at NYCORE, so N-Y-E-C-O-R-E um, on Instagram as well. So yeah. Cool. And we'll make sure that um, when the page goes live or the episode goes live in July, um, we're doing special releases uh, every month um, until I run out of people that have talked to me for our autistic um, and I hate saying disabled voices because that just sounds weird. So please correct me on that. Um, but yeah, for, for voices of people that have a disability or a diagnosis or just the world doesn't fit quite well enough, um, you know, this is something that we really want to talk less, um, listen more, do better. Um, and I, I really enjoy having these chances to do that. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, I am throwing things into a chat for how to get your CEs. And one other thing too. Um, and so this is kind of our first time with me doing this. 
uh, or in with having a, a discussion about like donations and everything. So one of the things in moments of transparency with the pod is uh, right now we're not at a point that we can afford to pay our guests, um, though crossing fingers, my goal is to one day get to that point. So for now, what we're going to be trying to do um, is provide some way to support either our guests um, through donations or through maybe a charity. So please be on the lookout because I will post that on our social medias. Um, and I may do an e- I will do an email follow-up um, later this weekend um, and include that information if we have it. But if we don't, you'll just get one later. You'll just keep hearing from me. It's fine. Um, <laughs> and so that way we're able to, you know, support Naida or support a cause for her. Um, and again, just kind of help other people because as much as I would love to say that this is about me. Um, it's not, it's not guys like we're in a profession where we're here to help other people um, and especially vulnerable populations. And, you know, the, the, I don't know, expectations we put on vulnerable populations just astounds me because they're mismatched um, and it doesn't make sense in my head. Um, and so, yeah, so please be on the lookout um, for that information. Um if you guys have anything else, feel free to reach out. Um, Naida's given her information. You can always find me on the Facebook pages or any of the social medias. And other than that, um, I love you all. Be kind humans. And uh, we'll see you guys later. Don't stop learning. Bye. Thank you Goodbye. guys for coming. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website, atypicalba.com, for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes. I love when people stick around because you are in for a treat. All right. So as promised, here is a preview clip from our next episode, 38. Enjoy, and we'll see you soon. Modeling that and showing here are my boundaries, then they start to realize, oh, I wonder what my boundaries are, you know, their boundaries, and they really find them. And then you can teach them that. And so I think boundaries are so important, especially for people with disabilities, because, you know, the statistics are terrifying. You know, it's like, I think it's 80% of disabled people, um, especially women, I believe it is, especially women of color, like it it gets increasingly worse and worse as you go through all the intersectionalities. are, are sexually abused or physically abused within their lifetime. And it's one of those things where you've, we've got to teach that self-advocacy point of we should not be hand over hand doing stuff with kids if they are not explicitly asking for that help. Like we should not be grabbing their bodies and manipulating them even to touch things or whatever, or, you know, like, we're going to change them. You know, when I talk about to caregivers, I'm like, tell them before you change their diaper, don't just start pulling their pants down. They need to be uncomfortable with somebody pulling their pants down if they're not being told, you know, that kind of thing. And like, mommy can do this, but nobody else can. Nobody can do this. You know, a doctor, you know, when you start preparing them to go to the doctor, the doctor can do this, this, and this. Doctors should not do this, this, and this. They shouldn't touch you here. They shouldn't touch you there. Then when they get older and they go to a gynecologist, here's the new rule about this doctor. This doctor can touch you here, but they still can't do this and this and this. So we need 
explicit rules for that self-advocacy as well to say because a lot of us we don't pick up social cues so we don't know the rules and you have to explicitly tell us like I said a doctor is different from a teacher is different from a gynecologist is different from mom is different from a person on the street and everybody has their own explicit rules that we don't always know and so modeling those and telling us those specific rules are of the utmost importance.